Welcome to Profit's Healthcare Transformers podcast, where we'll be talking to leaders in healthcare who are focused on transforming their organizations to drive the next level of growth for their business and for healthcare. Hosted by Priya Anasia, Lindsay Mosby, Paul Schrimpf, and Jeff Gorgi. Transformation is one of those terms that has a lot of layers to it. Sometimes it's about innovation. Sometimes it's about shifting the way you do business. Sometimes it's to your overall operating model. And other times it's to a specific department or function. It's also about people, helping them navigate the discomfort that comes with change, but also motivating them to engage in the journey of transformation from the CEO to the newest employee. It's a journey, and that's why we created this podcast, to break down this multidimensional, dynamic topic of transformation, one story at a time. Are you ready to dive in? Hi, I'm Paul Shrimp. I'm your host for this episode. I am joined by Dr. Thomas Cornwell, National Medical Director of Village Medical at Home. Tom, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yes, well, we always like to kind of get right to it, but we'd love to get just a quick 60-second overview of Tom. And if you could kind of go beyond a little bit of uh, where you've kind of gathered your paycheck over the years and maybe something unique we might not have heard about you so far. The unique thing is just what I've been doing. And that is, you know, since 1993, I started doing house calls. And I've done over 34,000 house calls and really have seen the impact, which is amazing, but also seen the health system from a very different perspective. And it has been a financial struggle all my life under this fee-for-service payment system because not only did the house call program lose money, but it kept hospitalizations away from the hospital that was supporting me. And so economically, it made no sense, though it was the right thing to do. And this new value-based care world that we're in is just so exciting for me because it creates an engine you know, behind doing the right thing, which we can talk about. That's wonderful. I'm imagining in your office, when you're saying 35,000 house calls, there's like a McDonald's sign out that kind of keeps rolling in terms of every new one that you do that's quite the number. And I'm surprised you've been able to keep track of that. It's just something I kept track of. And actually, my partner, Dr. Paul Chang at Northwestern Home Care Physicians, my previous employer before I went to Village MD, has actually now made over 35,000. So he now has the record in the country of uh, making house calls. He has passed me by. That's amazing. I would love to start kind of way back when you kind of got into it, because you clearly have a passion around house calls. Like there's such a center of gravity to everything we're about to talk about. But how did you come into that? Was it serendipitous? Was it by choice? When did you kind of fall in love with it? But just Tell me about those early years of making house calls. You know, sort of serendipitous. I, like many, did not think house calls um, still existed. And But what happened was I, as part of my faith, had done some missions work in Africa and Mexico. And I worked for an urgent care center, a part of a hospital west of Chicago and that you do shift work. And so one day a week, I volunteered at a a Christian, fairly qualified health center, you know, just uh, seeing uninsured people one day a week. So I always had been drawn to disenfranchised patients, you know, patients that, you know, couldn't get health care. And it was always because they didn't have money. Right. Well, then this person wanted to start this house call program in Chicago. And here the people had insurance. They all had Medicare, but they were disenfranchised because they could not get to the healthcare system. And so this guy thought, oh, maybe Tom would enjoy taking care of these homebound people. He does this other stuff. And so I started doing actually, you know, continued on with my urgent care for pay and did it kind of on the side. And it quickly grew because of the demand of these homebound patients that really weren't receiving care. That's great. That's great. And then 
take me or take us through this kind of evolution of home care or mainly house calls. Cause that's when we're talking house calls, we're talking about a physician doing a visit or do you define it more broadly than that? No, um, well, no. It, it, so right now the profession that is really making house calls dramatically increase in this country are nurse practitioners. Physician assistants, some. We actually, and I, you know, had a, a part in this is in the, in the late 90s, we actually were able to double the payments for house calls by convincing the Senate that there was value in supporting house calls because it dramatically reduced healthcare costs. In 2006, we doubled and tripled the payments to go to assisted living facilities and have seen a dramatic increase in that. But it's been mainly nurse practitioners that do a a great job at this because physicians just cost a lot and it costs a lot to have people driving around seeing patients. But it really has been this value-based care with Medicare Advantage programs, with new Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, CMMI programs that have really created an economic engine because all of a sudden you get rewarded for keeping patients out of the hospital and nothing has been shown to reduce hospitalizations on the sickest patients in society as much as home-based primary care. Yeah. And when you're saying you get rewarded for keeping patients out of the house, who's getting rewarded in this scheme? Right. And so Village MD attempts to get as much risk, take on as much risk for their patients as they can. And so we are the largest participant in CMMI's direct contracting program. It's going to change to the ACO REACH. That's going to be a new name under the Biden administration uh, next year. But we take full risk for our Medicare patients. And so if they go to the hospital, we pay for it. If they go to specialists, we pay for it. They are in complete control of doing whatever they want, but we want to give them such great health care. Part of that is house calls that because uh, not only to when they get sick to have them not have to go to the hospital because they have no alternative, but even there is a lot of end of life care that is involved in home-based primary care because you're seeing an elderly population that's very sick. This is a good on-ramp into fundamentals around all things value-based care. So I'd love for you to kind of riff for a bit there. Right. And I was asked to do this for the American Academy of Home Care Medicine a couple of years ago and came up with some financial data that I think just so simply really drives this home. And then I'll give you an ex- just a powerful example of what you can do with that financial example. And so here's a financial example. You have 10,000 direct contracting lives. We're at full risk for them. You would expect 5% of the sickest to benefit from home-based primary care, typically. Okay, the sickest patients, the ones that can't get to the... Okay, and so if we have 500 patients, if I do a great job billing for them under fee-for-service, I get about a million dollars, Okay. You take those same patients and you put them in value-based care. Medicare has a formula that they determine in terms of paying us for these patients. The one part that we can do to alter that, because we can't alter their age, where they live, which is part of the formula, but we can alter letting Medicare know all the diseases that these patients have, because the more diseases they have, the more we get paid for them. And the homebound patients have a lot of diseases. And so that's part of what we can do too as a home-based primary care program is we can make sure Medicare knows how sick they are. What would we get paid under value-based care for these 500 patients where we get a million from fee-for-service? We get $16 million. 
$16 million. Now realize Medicare is not all of a sudden generous. They know how, you know, these patients cost about $35,000 each, the top 5%. And that is where our incentive is to give them great care. And the largest cost is always the hospital. So if we can keep people out of the hospital, we can use those dollars for giving them better care. Here is the example. We are doing a program out of Johns Hopkins in Houston called the Capable Program, where patients have to be low income, highly complex, and functionally impaired. Over a four-month period, we send in an occupational therapist to work on, on safety and improving their function. We send in a nurse to get them engaged with their care. But what is magical, think about this in terms of healthcare. What is magical about the program is after the second OT visit, we bring in a handy worker with a $1,600 budget and put in grab bars and raise toilet seats and smoke and carbon monoxide detectors and ramps. And how can we afford to do that when there's no payment model? Because we get the $16 million and that care has been shown to keep them out of the hospital. So how wonderful to use hospital dollars. No one wants to be there and instead do things for them that keeps them out of the hospital. And the last example of that program is when there was that freeze in Houston in February of 21, if you remember that, that shut down the city. Capable, we bought space heaters. $50 space heaters for these elderly homebound people. Think in terms of healthcare dollars, how powerful a $50 space heater for someone in Houston that doesn't really have you know a good heating system, right? Anyways, it just, it blows my mind in terms of going from this fee-for-service to now living in this magical world where I can do unbelievable care for my patients and it's paid for by keeping them where they don't want to be out of the hospital. Yeah, and that's a, it's a really good point because I've had a number of clients I've been close to where the conversation goes like this. It's like, there's a great business opportunity. There's lots of revenue in complex chronic, the patients that you're, you're, you're describing that you're helping with because the amount of revenue that they, the attention they get, if we can get that and, and right size it, we can make a lot of money and get them healthier. And more and more now, there's somebody in the audience going, I was at a last company. We did that. We got destroyed because I think there is a myth and I'd love to get your thoughts or builds around this where if we take on these complex chronics and really be smart and kind of be very intentional and focused around the services that we provide, we can make money. But there's a counter to that is where when you look at a, a village medical, there's actually, you want to be doing more services, but lower cost pragmatic services. So more interactions, more touches. You don't want to be dialing back the touches and interactions. You want to be dialing that up, but in more interesting ways to your point, like space heaters, or I've heard like, you know, making sure people's toenails are trimmed so they don't trip on the carpet. And like the stuff that's really low cost that has a big impact on overall outcomes. But would love your thoughts and reactions to people's fear of these, this complex kind of like, look at all this money, we could do it. And they always get out of it within like 18 months. You know, it's not easy. And it's partly not easy because it's not trained. All medical training is focused on a specific disease or organ. So you learn about heart, you learn about diabetes, you learn about kidney disease, but what happens if you have all of them? And that is not, and it consumes 75% of the Medicare budget, people with five or more chronic diseases, but it's not really trained. And so one, I don't think people realize truly how complex it is. You nailed it with the high touches. Not coincidentally, we require 54% of our costs are with two diseases, CHF and COPD. We require 
all of our CHF and COPD patients to get six provider, you know, physician and APP touches a year. And that doesn't even include, you know, like the care management that we also surround them with to make sure that they're taking their medicines correctly. So there's this huge incentive because the hospital is so costly in these populations. There is such a huge incentive to do exactly what you said. These need so many touches that can be paid for if those touches keep them out of the hospital, which we have data it does. That's a really great point. Coming into this conversation, I was always had questions around how do you keep costs or how do you make money with house calls? Because yes, it keeps them more healthy or keeps them out of the hospital. But if you just do that in a fee-for-service world, if I'm running a physician practice, I'm a single physician, I can see 20 or 30 patients a day. If I go house calls, you know, depending if I'm urban or rural or having a hard time parking or driving long distances, that drops to maybe like five, seven, 10 at best. So how am I keeping costs down by seeing fewer patients than having them visit me. But you begin to kind of paint that picture of how the you have to view the economics differently through value-based care versus fee-for-service and how you get this world of aligned incentives to work. But would love to you to, to build on some of that, that thinking as well, because I'm beginning to understand, but would love more of that fidelity to come through. You answered it. You know, under fee-for-service, exactly what you said. If you can do 30 visits in the office, and I averaged 10 visits in the home, I had a medical assistant and we were extremely efficient. You can't. We I lost money, you know, all the time. But under this value-based care, Again, if I, if, if a nurse practitioner does one house call under fee for service, I would bill about $1,500 of revenue a day doing 10 house calls, about $150 a visit. Okay. If I send out a nurse practitioner to do one house call a day that prevents a sick patient from going to the hospital, that's a $15,000 visit. That's 10 times more with one visit. Yeah. Okay. So all of a sudden it really makes sense. The other thing I think is hugely important in terms of the model for people interested in doing this is from a revenue standpoint, capturing those diagnoses. They're called HCC scores, hierarchical condition categories. Capturing those diagnoses is huge. And that's another thing. Some of these homebound patients don't get into the doctor's office to capture how sick they are. So we're not getting the revenue from Medicare because we're not showing them how sick they are. And so that's another thing we do. And then also showing Medicare how sick they are gets us excluded from these things called HEDIS measures that get you your star ratings. So for instance, if I have a patient that I think is going to die this year, you know, it's not right to try to get them to do mammograms and colon cancer screening to try to get your quality metrics up because they're dying, right? And so we can, by showing Medicare how sick our patients are, these are called frailty diagnoses. It also then helps us with our quality metrics because the patients that just can't do them, we can show Medicare, you know, don't count these patients in the denominator in, you know, who should have them because they really, it would be wrong to recommend them to get these testing done. God, that's great. That's a really important takeaway on that. The one question I want to ask you is, you talked a lot about the use of technology and the one peeve, I've got so many peeves, but one of them is this debate around digital versus non-digital healthcare, which I think is a false binary decision. But how do you think about the use of digital, the use of technology in delivering care today as it relates to, to your organization? The term I often use that everybody uses is right care, right time, right place. And for most healthcare organizations, the right place is the right place if it's convenient for us, not if it's convenient for you. And so one, we are doing 
for sure right place because Village has office, it has telehealth, and it has at home. And so where the right place is for you, we will truly do it. But then also to your technology point, I think that's part of the right care. So is having a digital scale for heart failure the right technology in the home where literally every time they step on it, it cellularly comes into our EMR? which we have, you know, I think that's where, you know, you get into not using technology where it's really not a value, but using it, you know, prudently in terms of what is best for the patient. That's great. And then stepping way back, we've been talking about value-based care for a long time. And it feels you're very excited about what you all are doing, seeing the potential What's the barrier to adoption? Why aren't we doing this in more places? Is it too good to be true? Are there some practical realities we just need to be aware of? But but help us understand the future of value-based care and what we should be excited about what's coming and where we need to be pessimistic and realistic with our expectations. You know, compared to fee-for-service, I really think value-based care is too good to be true. And it just makes so much sense should we pay that the sicker people get, the richer we get? Or should we pay the healthier? And any other industry, if the cars didn't work, it wouldn't be successful. And my answer to that is we have developed a $4 trillion health system based on fee-for-service. And that's where all their incentives have been there, all their structures are around that. And it's very difficult to change a $4 trillion system And I think that's the biggest barrier is that we win by reducing hospitalization. We win by reducing unnecessary procedures. We win by reducing unnecessary specialist visits, but they all lose. And, And they're right now the richest part of the health system. Hospitals are the richest. Specialists are richer than primary care. Do you know what I mean? And so I think that's the biggest thing is there's just so much wealth associated with keeping things the way they are, that it's just hard to to change that. It, it seems to work really well, or it's easier to understand the care outcomes and the financial outcomes when we're kind of in this Medicare space. I mean, once you get over the age of 65, 70, your multiple conditions likely to view kind of managing your health gets more expensive. I mean, is your opinion that you see value-based care first kind of continuing to prove itself out in the in the Medicare space? Do we see this coming to the more the commercially insured like myself? But love to get your thoughts on either the tiering or the pacing or what we can can we all expect and where to see this see this unfold? I would expect, and I'll tell you why, that in the commercial it may not be as important. And here's the reason why healthcare costs are incredibly concentrated. Five percent of the Medicare population consumes. of the cost and an average cost of about $50,000 a patient, the top 1%, so the sickest one in 100, consumes 22.5% of all the costs. That is amazing. And an average cost of over $110,000 a patient. So it makes a lot of sense putting those patients on value-based care. To your point about commercial, the cheapest 50% of the Medicare population consumes 2.8% of the cost, cheapest 50% and an average cost of about $300 a patient. Value-based wouldn't work there. You know, there's no cost. What are you going to save on a $300 a year patient kind of stuff? And so that I've never thought of that before, but it really is where all insurance probably has their top 5%. And so I think in commercial, but I, it's more targeting. It's not like all of Medicare. It's not all of commercial. It's targeting that sickest 5% 
and putting value-based, you know, putting providers at risk so that they don't financially benefit from the sickness that these patients have. Yeah, now that's a really interesting take in, in that we could, our two opinions could go to the world of value-based care is going to continue to grow. But for us to think there is a future where we're all in value-based care is probably not the right way to be thinking about it. No, and, and also the other reason is because, you know, people in Medicare tend to, you know, kind of stick with their insurance and their provider. Commercial people, you know, you get a new employer that also because part of controlling costs is I'm taking care of, of their heart failure incredibly well, not just for this year, but for next year, the year after their dementia. I am putting things in place now. So over the next three to five years, well, if people in commercial are frequently changing, that takes away the value of really incentivizing you to put in resources now to reap benefit to like the capable program reaps benefits over a number of years. And if you're not going to have them two years from now, you don't have those same incentives like you do like in, in commercial, you know, it doesn't, you know, they don't stick as often. And because older people tend to be sicker, you know, you don't have to be a doctor to know that, you know, the baby boom, right? 10,000 new Medicare beneficiaries every day until I don't know what date. And so that's part of it too, is with our aging society, we're going to have more of these $50,000 patients over the years because we're just aging. That's a great point. You've seen and gone through a lot in this space over the years, but if you could go back to your younger self when you were in Africa or Mexico or whatnot and tell yourself one thing, having seen all the things that you've seen, what would you tell yourself? You know, one of the neatest things that I didn't think of at the time was in 1995, this wasn't easy. The organization that I was employed by went bankrupt. They were in San Diego and we were a franchise. And in 1996, and again, because my wife and I felt that God called us to this, uh, she actually supported us. I had no income doing house calls in 1996, but just saw miracles happening with my patients. And she supported me being the children's pastor at our church. And so now, not very many children's pastors are supporting, but just to look back at that and just how we grew as a couple and then not giving up when it could have been pretty easy, you know, to give up at that time. And then subsequently literally seeing things like, you know, being named the most caring, impactful geriatrician in the country in 2015 by the American Geriatric Society, being honored in Congress by my congressman in terms of the impact. And I think, you know, that is the thing that I look back on is, you know, having a little bit of faith back then that this work was the right thing to do. And then now being with Village and being able to, as I said, spread this work that I have seen I have such incredible value across the country. It is just a gift from Village to me and to what I've devoted my life to. That's great advice. I think the build on that was it's coming through in the conversation and, and all the conversations I've listened to you in, in your podcast interviews is your patient centricity because you're in their homes, you do these calls, you have a closeness and appreciation where I think a lot of healthcare organizations, when they say we're patient-centric, I might make the argument you, you could be disease or condition-centric. You might be population-centric. And I've even seen my clients be honest with themselves going, we keep saying we're patient-centric, but was the last time we saw somebody with said condition or had a conversation? But that's really important as when you're... The fidelity and the way that you're talking about you, your organization, is every time you're saying something, I'm seeing you picture it an individual in your mind <laughs> because you see them. And I think that can't be ignored. 
as we go to value-based care, as we begin to brag about patient centricity is get out there and get in front of patients because then you know and you know what to do the right thing is, which I think is really ex- exciting to see in your stories. You know, I tell my my all my trainees that we're in the business of doing miracles. And I really mean that because the healthcare system has not been set up for these homebound people. Going to the hospital when you really don't need to is the worst thing for an 80-year-old. And even, you know, one time I was, you know, a story that I commonly say is there was this um, 82-year-old that I was called out to do a nursing home placement. House calls have actually been shown, the VA has shown an 89% reduction in nursing home placement. We keep people out of the hospital. So this is a very unusual visit. And so I went out and, and she didn't realize that that's what the visit was for. And she just begged me, just pleaded with me, please don't let them put me in a nursing home. She'd been in the hospital six times in the last four months. She had bilateral amputations, heart failure, diabetes. She had pressure sores on her bottom because she lived in an electric wheelchair, but she just was like pleading. And what I learned was she was born in Germany and found herself in a concentration camp at an early age. And no one knew that part of the reason why she had amputations was because of frostbite from that concentration camp. And my job is obviously to keep them out of nursing homes. And so easily, not much difficulty, got her heart failure under control. So she had no primary care doctor. She couldn't get out. So I get her heart failure under control. I get her diabetes under control. I get home health out and literally get a therapist that can do that, that shows her how to use a transfer chair or transfer uh, board to get her into a hospital bed that we got. We got her, her pressure source healed. We got her so much better that we actually paid for her to go to a rehab center got her new prostheses so she could actually walk again. And I've had a picture of her, you know, with her walker. And so she could get into her bathroom again. But literally, in over the next eight years, she only went back to the hospital twice. Uh, fortunately, she actually, uh, the second hospitalization was from a massive heart attack that took her life. So she fortunately died quickly without ever having to go to the nursing home, to the prison again. And I'm not saying that nursing homes are prisons, but in her mind, she was forced into prison early early in life wrongly, and that she was being forced again into a prison. And what a joy for me. And this is what kept me going, you know, supported by my wife is I couldn't stop doing this because this was happening all the time in terms of changing people's lives. Yeah. We spend so much time looking at data and spreadsheets on patients. And my, my sister's a geriatrician in the hospice as well. And um, her group worked with the VA. We're on an initiative that's called Just Tell Me Your Story. It was very simple. If if you want to know about a patient, ask them. They'll be more than happy to tell you everything that you need to know. And the amount of information like this concentration camp stuff comes in and it's not gonna that's not gonna come through an EMR report, which is incredibly important. Tom, this has been great. For people that are kind of looking to step into value-based care or to get home care right or to get house calls and, and visits right, what would be some advice you'd give to them? that you think they'd be use- that would be useful? There is actually a nonprofit that I um, started with a $15 million gift from a very generous donor uh, called the Home Centered Care Institute, the Home Centered Care Institute. There are modules, there are tools and tip sheets, there are even consultants as part of it, but it is really the only nonprofit that has all these resources if people are interested. I'm on the board, and so even with that, I am available. If people are just interested, this is my passion. One of the things that Village is very good about, so all the teaching that I do at Village, Village says you can give it to the Home Centered Care Institute. 
We want to help others to do this. We don't want this to be just a competitive advantage. And so they are really a wonderful mission-oriented uh, that wants anyone that's interested in doing house calls to know about it. And, uh, and so the Home Center Care Institute is a real great resource if people are interested in this. That's great. You did one better of advice and you actually gave people a resource on that. That's as you're going above and beyond as usual. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> awesome. Well, Tom, thank you so much for uh, sitting down and sharing your story today. No, this is great. I really appreciate the opportunity to share uh, my life's work. Thanks for listening to Profits Healthcare Transformers podcast. This podcast is produced by Jared Johnson and his wonderful team at Shift Forward Health. And a big thank you to our hosts, Priya and Asia, Lindsay Mosby, Paul Schrimpf, and Jeff Gorgi. If you like today's episode, you can find more great content like this at profit.com slash thinking. I'm Anna Kuno, the senior editor of this podcast. Thank you for listening.